Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. Hey, when you're done listening to this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free app. From there, you can find all of our recent message content. Our app is actually the best place to keep up with everything going on at Hope. If you like what you hear today, we encourage you to share this with your friends or family. Enjoy. I don't know about you, sometimes, sometimes I think that we should just bring the band out and sing that new song like 10 times and then just go home. You agree with me? So good. Uh, but if uh, this is your first time, welcome, especially online. Maybe you're joining us at GetHope.tv or uh, YouTube Live or Facebook Live. We're so glad that you're joining with us. Uh, welcome those of you at one of our physical campuses at Apex, Morrisville, Garner, or Raleigh. How are you guys doing in the room right now? You doing all right? Good. Well, uh, if this is your first time at Hope, we kicked off a brand new sermon series last week that we're calling Counter Culture, where we're going through the book of 1 Peter. In fact, if you have your Bibles or a phone app, you can go ahead and turn there. We're going to be in chapter 1, verse 13. And uh, we kicked that off last week with an interesting sermon. You'll notice I don't have my preaching helmet this week, so we're safe, we're good, we're all right. Uh, but we're going through the book of 1 Peter, which is a letter written by one of Jesus' disciples named Peter, and he's writing to a uh, a group of uh, Christians all over the Roman Empire. They've been dispersed to all these different cities and towns because uh, they were undergoing some pretty serious persecution and they had to flee for their lives. And so they settled in all these new hometowns. So their world has literally changed overnight. Uh, they've gone from a godly culture to a godless culture. Uh, they've gone from a pretty welcoming city to a kind of a, a hostile uh, uh, town where they live now. And uh, everything has changed. These Christians have gone from the majority to being pushed to the sidelines, to the margins of society, kind of like uh, Christians in America today, kind of like the cultural moment uh, that we find ourselves in. And in these new cities, uh, they are finding that they are undergoing intense and daily pressure uh, to conform to the Roman way of life, to leave behind uh, Christianity and to adapt, to adopt the Roman way of life. But before we jump into the text, I just need to take a few minutes to really explain to you how intense uh, that pressure really was. See, to live in first century Rome was really to live in a world full of gods and goddesses. So uh, we have the, the Roman pantheon of gods. We, we all read about in school, the Greek gods and the Roman gods. But besides that, there were hundreds, if not thousands of other gods and goddesses. In fact, each individual household uh, would revere or worship some of their ancestors. So their great-great-grandfather and great-great-grandmother, they'd actually have an altar in their house when they woke up and when they went to sleep, they would say prayers, they would offer sacrifices when they entered the house when they left. And not just that, but every single town claimed a certain God or goddess, and then every city, and then every single region. Uh, there were gods for weather events, uh, like rain and storms and droughts. There were gods for harvesting crops. Uh, there were gods for love and relationships. There were gods for uh, finances. And then every single trade, like if you were a baker or a tailor or a store owner, you would have your own individual God over that guild, over that trade. Uh, there was a God of healing. There was a God of luck. There was a God of childbirth. There was a God of war. And uh, attached to every single one of these gods and goddesses were different rituals uh, or different worship experiences or uh, monthly or yearly festivals that would include things like drinking and feasting. Uh, there was ritual sex with temple prostitutes back then. There was the killing of animals, uh, the offering of burnt offerings, all sorts of stuff. And every single person was expected to uh, 
worship all these different gods and goddesses. No one had just, well, they had their own personal God too, but no one just worshiped that God alone. That would be crazy. So to be a Christian in this society would be to stick out like a fly on a wedding cake, right? I mean, just worship one God, that's great. and then not even have a picture of that God or an image, and then not have a place where you would sacrifice and offer uh, to that God, that, that's nuts. And not only was it crazy, but it was also extremely offensive. So imagine being invited to your friend's house for dinner, and uh, before you're allowed to enter the house, you're expected to say a prayer to great-grandfather and to offer an offering to him, and instead you're like, no, nah, I'm a Christian, so rest in power, Gramps, and you just kind of like walk in. That would be so offensive to their whole household. And now think of the implications. Like what if the harvest failed that year, and people were on the brink of starvation, and everyone in town realized, hey, that Christian family, they weren't at the sowing seed festival to the God of the harvest in the spring. Who do you think they're going to be coming after? Yeah, you. Or imagine if a sickness kind of ran through the city, a plague, and lots of people were dying, and they noticed that you refused to bow down to and offer sacrifices to the God of healing. Who are they coming after with pitchforks and torches? It's you. And so the Christians that Peter is writing to are literally having like moms of dead children knock on their door and just like screaming at them, you are the reason they died. You are the reason my child died because of your hateful and selfish Christian principles. You would have grown men kind of drag you off the street with a sword and just say, hey, I need you to bow down and worship this God or I'm gonna kill you right now to appease this God. See, that's the constant and daily pressure that they were under. They were a walking offense. They were a misunderstood and hated people. Now that's extreme, but I think we experience something kind of similar today, not nearly to that, that effect, but I can, I can imagine scenes in my head on college campuses or around the water cooler at work where a Christian value or truth is, is expressed and someone yells bigot or they yell fascist. Like we don't have it as intense as the people that Peter's writing to, but we feel it. Don't you feel it? Like, I don't really feel like I can give this view. <laughs> I don't really feel like I should speak up in this conversation. We feel the daily pressure to drop certain tenets of our faith. Well, that's the world uh, that these Christians are living in. And Peter knows that one of the things they're going to be tempted to give up, one of the first things is their holiness. They're going to be tempted to drop their holiness, to, to drop their single-minded devotion to Jesus, to drop uh, their, their, their desire to be and to do the things that God has called them to be and to do. Every single day, they are pressured to drop this command or drop that one or break this law or break that one. And so one of the first things that Peter does in this letter is he pleads with them, don't do it. So if I had to title this message, I would title it, Hold On to Holiness. Hold on to holiness. And that's the topic of our text uh, today. Uh, so before we jump in, actually, this is to those of you that are in a small group. This is kind of like Bible dorky stuff. This is free. You can zone out. But if you like studying the Bible like I do, um, one thing that you'll notice if, as you go through this letter in your small group, if you're not in a small group, you should definitely get in one. It's kind of how we make a big church small. Uh, you'll grow by leaps and bounds. It's one of the best things that we do. But as you're studying this letter, you'll, you'll realize that, that this letter is different than the letters of Paul. Uh, Paul is pretty logical and pretty linear. He starts with an idea and then goes to idea B and then idea C and then idea D. And it's just a very linear, linear progression. Well, Peter's kind of more conversational. He's more circular. So he'll start with this topic and then go to a second one. You're like, how did we get here? I don't know. Then he's back at the first topic. Then he'll go to the third topic. So here's what I'd recommend. I'd recommend you get six or seven different color 
colored pencils or markers. Maybe you can do this in the Bible app as well and just say, all right, blue is going to be for when he talks about holiness. So you just read the whole letter. When you get to the next section on holiness, you circle it. When you're done, uh, you'll, you'll get a good grasp for everything that Peter thinks about holiness or thinks about submission uh, or thinks about hope. So that part's free. Anyway, let's jump in. Verse 13 says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. There's tons of stuff in here. But one of the most helpful things that Peter does in this section is he gives us a definition of holiness, which is really great. Because I don't know if you're like me. Uh, When I first came to Jesus, I was all about the forgiveness part, that holiness part. Eh, I don't know about that. So when I was first confronted with, hey, he doesn't just want to forgive you. He wants to transform you. I was like, okay, I had two thoughts. One, that's impossible. Do you know me? Like, I'm really messed up. And then secondly, like, I don't even want that. Like, I kind of want to keep having fun. Let's do the heaven thing, but let me do my own way here on earth. But uh, Peter kind of makes holiness very, very, um, uh, you can approach it. It's approachable. Uh, he gives us a definition in verse 15. He says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy on your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Peter says holiness is it's just being like God. It's just being like God. It gets a bad rap. But he's really just says holiness is being like God. And here's the thing. That's how you were created to be. When God created human beings in Genesis, he did so with the intention that they would bear his image. You were created to be like God. Peter says, as obedient children, like we're supposed to bear a family resemblance. See, when God created human beings, we were supposed to be like these these windows or these mirrors that people could look into And through the way that we talked and through the way that we related and through the way that we acted and obeyed, they'd say, oh, that's what God is like. But now because of sin, that image is still there, but it's kind of broken and it's distorted. Now it's like looking in one of those funhouse uh, mirrors, you know, at the fair. You guys see that where, where it, it, the, the image is there, but this part's wider, this part's taller. Uh, the, the outline's there, the shape is there, but it's all muddled. It's kind of like some of your 10-year challenge photos from Facebook. I saw them. You tried to delete them, but I saw them. You're like, oh, that's what you used to look like. <laughs> like, okay, the, the resemblance is there, but that part's a little grayer, right? That part's a little wider. That part's a little lower. I should have stopped. All right, there's the line. Um, <laughs> but holiness is really just being like God. It's, it's God calling us back to our original design. That's all holiness is. See, when Jesus reached down to save you, he didn't just save you from something. He saved you for something. And holiness, the original reason that you were designed, the, the way that you were designed to live, that's the for something that Jesus saved you for. And so he's given us all these commands and do's and don't do's, not to steal our fun, but really to show us, to remind us, this is who you were meant to be. And so all of his rules, all of his commands, all of his laws really are like the new mold that he wants to reshape us into. 
He wants to reshape us into. Now that reshaping progress, uh, that, that process of reshaping, we call sanctification or growing in your holiness. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes that process is fun. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it stinks and it's uncomfortable. Like you ever go to a chiropractor? Anybody been to a chiropractor? My friend calls them the out of whack back quack. That's what he calls them. But sometimes you'll go to the chiropractor and they'll just pop your back in one way. And you're like, oh, I'm like 10 years younger. Like I can feel my left foot. This is amazing. But then sometimes he'll crack something. You're like, I think that you have permanently injured me. Like that is not fun. That is painful. That's how sanctification or growing in holiness is. Like, oh, oh, you mean I'm supposed to have peace? That's awesome. I'm not supposed to be hyperventilating and freaking out every single day. Yeah, I'll take some peace. I'll, I'll take that. I'll take some joy. I'll take some faith. But then other parts we don't want so much because it, it feels weird. It feels uncomfortable. There's some pain and discomfort. Like, oh, you want me to be pure? <laughs> and everything that I do, I'm supposed to be selfless. I'm supposed to be generous. But notice we aren't just called to the fun parts. We're called to be holy in all that we do. Completely holy, completely set apart and pure in our speech and in our relationships, even to the level of our thoughts and to our motivations, because that's how God created you to be. So, so that's what holiness is. It's the way that we, we, we become who we were created to be, like God, the thing for which Jesus saved us. And this is what Peter is telling us to hold on to. This is what Peter is telling us to pursue. Now note this, write this down. Holiness is something that we pursue. It's not something that we push on others. It's something that we pursue, but it's not something that we push on others. It's something that we and our brothers and sisters in Christ who have signed up for this process, we hold each other accountable. We pursue that together, but we don't push it on people who have opted out of this process. You see? Now, this is what Peter knows we are going to be tempted to give up on, whether it's an inside voice saying this stinks, this is not fun, this is uncomfortable, or outside voices saying that's backwards. I don't like that. Don't do that. You got to be on the right side of history. That's stupid. Don't do that. So, so he gives us three motivations to hold on to holiness. All right. Here's the first one. You may have noticed it because you hated it when I read it, <laughs> but it's in verse 17 where Peter says this. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The first motivation is fear. It's out of reverent fear. Hold your applause. Hold your applause. No, we don't like this, okay? Uh, what Peter's saying is, okay, he is, he is a loving father. That's how we typically relate to God. He is. But he's also an impartial judge. And our actions matter. And there's going to be a huge pushback on this, okay? Like, we sh didn't we leave fear behind with the Puritans? Like, there's a reason I left the Catholic Church. I don't want a religion based on fear. Like, we don't need hell, fire, and brimstone preaching. And I would agree with you. The problem is Jesus is the one that preaches to us about a real place called hell. And he tells us it's filled with fire, and he uses it as a motivation, and you might say, well, that's not a good motivation. Like we shouldn't want to scare people towards God. And I would say it's not the only motivation, but it is a legitimate one. And what Peter actually points out is whether you know it or not, you're already being motivated by fear right now. You might not like it, but you're going to have to agree it's a powerful motivation. In fact, Peter says fear is one of the main reasons we drop holiness Fear is one of the one, uh, reasons we, we start to break God's law or leave behind his truths. Maybe it's the fear of man, fear of what people will think. I don't want you to think I'm hateful. 
I don't want you to think I'm a bigot. I want you to think I'm cool. And so we drop holiness out of fear of man or it's fear of missing out. I don't want to obey this rule. Like that, that seems not fun. I, I want to have fun. That's why we drop holiness out of fear of missing out or fear of losing a relationship. Like I know what God's word says about sexual purity before marriage, but I just don't want to lose him. I just don't want to lose her. See, Peter's saying you're already acting out of fear. You might as well fear the right thing. You might as well have an appropriate fear and make no mistake. When it comes to the God of the Bible, fear is an appropriate emotion. When you get a vision, when you come to the presence of the God of the Bible, not the the God that you made up in your head, but the holy and supreme and sovereign and invincible and powerful God of the Bible, uh, fear is a natural response. In fact, fear is what happens when you see God for who he really is. We get these little glimpses of people who actually got to see God. And one of their number one responses is fear. That's the immediate thing they fear. There's this guy named Moses in the Old Testament who says, I want to see your face. And God's like, that's cute. You would die. No. But he says, here's the deal. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock and I'm going to walk away from you. And you can see the bottom of my coat. Like God wears a North face or something. I don't know, but that's, that's what happened. And Moses got to see it. And it says he was so fearful. And even that little glimpse, his face shone for like 10 days. Other people were afraid of him. Or there's the prophet Isaiah and the disciple John. They got to see God. They actually got to see heaven, but they, they didn't get to see it with their eyes, but just a, as a vision in their head. And when that happens, Isaiah just cries out, woe is me, like I'm in danger. And it says that John actually falls down as if he's dead. And I fear that we've missed that in the, in the American church. I think that we may have turned God into a buddy or into a life coach and forgotten just who he is. We even see this with Jesus. People respond even to Jesus in fear. Like there's this one time where there's this huge storm and they're on a boat and they're in the middle of the sea. Peter was there. Peter was there. He, he had this experience. And uh, they're like, man, we're going to go down. We might as well wake up Jesus and like have some last words. So they wake up Jesus. Like, how can you sleep anyway? Hey, Jesus, there's a hurricane. We're going to die. It's been nice knowing you. And Jesus is like, what? I can't hear you. They're like, we're going to die. It's been nice knowing you. And Jesus is like, I still can't hear you. Hold on. Peace. And the storm just stops. And it says the disciples just like shook in fear how powerful he was. Or this other time, there's this guy that had a legion of demons inside him. And Jesus frees him from those demons and he sends them into a herd of pigs and they jump over this this cliff. And I realize now, if you're brand new to church, that's not the best story to bring up because it's very confusing, but maybe we'll explain it later. But it says the town people actually responded in fear and begged him to leave, right? So Jesus isn't just this like this, this, this frilly haired kind of hippie in a robe. Like, yeah, he's the dude that has the children on his lap. But in that moment, when he has that child in his lap, he also points to the adults and says, oh, by the way, if you cause this little one to sin, it would be better if a millstone was tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Because that's how I fear about sin. And you don't want to get on my bad side, right? He is our father, but he's also our judge. And that's a good thing. Listen, our world is crying out for justice. Your heart is crying out for justice. You want a God that punishes evil. You want a God that that hates sin and will one day pour out his wrath upon it. You want a God who wants to do away with injustice. And that's the God that we have in the Bible. God hates sin and he hates it because that's the thing that broke his world. 
Sin is the thing that, that tears apart and wounds and harms the, the men and women, the children that he created and loves so much. And Peter's just saying, you might want to think twice about befriending or even endorsing God's main enemy because you're going to have to stand before him one day. Right? So Peter says, let, let that fear replace all those lesser fears. Let the fear of God replace that fear of man or fear of missing out or fear of losing someone. So Peter says, let that fear motivate. He says this in chapter three, he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed and have no fear of them, the ones that are causing you to suffer nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor or revere or fear Christ the Lord as holy. So fear, but there's another motivation and it's different, but it's equally as powerful. Peter says, Hold on to holiness, not just out of fear, but also because you're free. Because you're free. Because you're free to do so. He says this in verse 18. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter says you were ransomed. If you don't know, that's how um, a slave experienced manumission. Or if you wanted to free a slave, you would have to ransom them. So in first century Rome, uh, you would gather up a whole bunch of money and you would go to the slave owner of the slave that you wanted to release. And you'd, you'd take him and the slave and you all three would go to the temple and go to a priest. And you would figure out how to split that cash with the slave owner and with the priest. And from that moment on, that owner no longer owned the slave. Instead, the god or the goddess of that temple owned that person and they were free. Like in that moment, they went from having to obey and do everything the owner demanded. And now they were free to do what they wanted. And Peter says, it's the same with us as Christ followers. If you're a Christ follower, you've been set free from sin, your old owner. You've been set free from your flesh, from having to obey its evil and harmful desires and passions. You're free because the price of Jesus's blood has been paid. So you've been ransomed, you've been freed. You can now become who God has created you to be. And I love this. See, inherent in the command, be holy, is the assumption and the truth that now through Christ, you can be. You can become to a really high degree who God originally created you to be through partnership with the spirit working in you. You can change. Am I the only messed up sinful person in this room that hears that and just like wants to dance? That is the best news ever. You can change. And I fear that again, we've lost that in the American church. Like we underestimate how much victory is ours in Jesus. I mean, I've talked to people who are struggling, not with sin, but with just like this one sin for 20 or 30 years. Why? Jesus died to free you from that. He says that in chapter 2, 16, live as people who are free. See, one of our biggest motivations to pursue holiness is because now through Christ, you can. <laughs> and I know a lot of young adults are in here, maybe some high schoolers, and you're like, what is this crazy guy saying? Like, I don't want holy. I'm not free to pursue holiness. Once I get my degree, once I get out of the house, I'm free to sow my wild oats. You're like, I'm not looking forward to growing up. I want to glow up, right? I want, I want to, I'm going to set aside holiness for a season. And then when I'm an old, boring adult with kids and I have nothing better to do, I'll pick up a holiness, right? But that's because you've been duped by the lie. The world tells you that that sin leads to joy and that holiness is boring, but it's the exact opposite, <laughs> And I have experience with that. How many people in here know the dark places that sin leads to? Am I alone? 
All of us do, yeah. How many of us have felt the futility and emptiness of sin? I have. See, holiness is not God trying to rob me of joy. Holiness is God trying to lead me to joy. That's what holiness is. It's the pathway to joy. And that is just, (laughs) that's the dream of my life nowadays. Because I've tried it the other way. (laughs) I've sought joy and satisfaction in all these things that God doesn't command. And I've just been having these conversations with Jenny over the past few years where I used to have all these aspirations and dreams. Like I wanted to be a teacher at a church. And then I wanted to like be a leader at a church. And then I wanted to start a church here and there. And nowadays, like I, I mean, honestly, I just want to be holy. Like I, I want to become the type of person that just overflows with peace and patience and wisdom and conviction and courage and faith. Like I really do want more and more of my life to become more and more like Jesus. Like I just dream about that. And I know how much holiness costs because it does cost. (laughs) And I know how uncomfortable that process is, but just for the sake of my kids and for the sake of my wife and for the sake of this church and for my own joy, like I just want holiness. I was in Psalm 19 this week and I used to read Psalm 19 and think, whoever wrote this, like Joker needs to get out more. But now like I get it. (laughs) He says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Peter says that Christians are those that have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And that's just true in my life. I've tasted holiness and I want more. And what Peter is saying here is that the price has been paid. The precious blood of Christ has connected you to the power source of change. So hold on to holiness because you can, because he's given you the power to do that. So out of reverent fear, hold on to holiness, but pursue it, chase after it because you actually can, which is the best news in the world. But there's a third motivation as well. And it's going to sound really, really weird, but I'm going to explain it. The third motivation that Peter uses is we we hold on to holiness to unleash a force. To unleash a force. And the reason I I, I chose that word force is because it started with F, like the other two. So fear, freedom, force. Also, so I could tell my middle school daughters, hey, I got three F words in my sermon this weekend. I'm I'm edgy. (laughs) They're like, what? Okay. Uh, But Peter does something brilliant in this uh, letter. And I shouldn't be surprised because it's the Holy Spirit working through him. But he compares holiness, the pursuit uh, uh, of being turned into the image of God. He compares it to like a force. Um, Like, you know, Isaac Newton, every action has an equal but opposite reaction. Like think in your head right now of like a magnet, Think like magnetic force. All right, now what do you think of when you think of magnet? You think a magnet attracts. It does, but that's not not the full definition. A magnet is something that attracts and repels. It does both at the same time. In fact, you can't have one without the other. If you get rid of the repulsion, you're going to get rid of the attraction. It's just the way the ions kind of move about the poles. So, So a magnet is something that attracts and repels at the same time. In fact, the stronger the power of attraction is, the stronger the power of repulsion is. And Peter, in this brilliant way, says that that's kind of like what holiness is. It's a force. 
Like a magnet, holiness also pushes away and it draws in. It it repulses, but it also attracts and it does these things at the same time. In fact, you can't have one without the other. When you get rid of one, you destroy the other. And what Peter says that, that when we pursue holiness, when we hold on to it, it will push people away. But it will also at the same time attract people to the God that we're trying to be like. He talks about this offense in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, you've had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy. Their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties and their terrible worship of idols. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. So they slander you like it's going to be offensive. You know who also had that effect? Jesus. Jesus pushed away. Uh, There's this one time in his ministry where uh, he had gathered like thousands and thousands. Uh, It's the height of his ministry, this huge crowd. He could have had like 10 multi-sites in one day. He was doing great as a pastor. And for some reason, he chose that day of all days to have like a preaching helmet sort of sermon. (laughs) He just gave it to him straight and said, you got to be so devoted to me. You got to eat my uh, flesh and drink my blood. And the crowds were like, well, that was fun while it lasted. And they just walked away. <laughs> In fact, he goes to Peter and says, you want to leave as well? He's like, I don't have anywhere else to go. Like later, um, Peter calls Jesus the, the, the cornerstone. He's the foundation for this amazing um, temple that he's building on earth. And you and I are living stones. But he's not just the, the cornerstone. He's also a rock of offense and a stumbling block that people kind of trip over and want to curse, you know. So listen, there will always be aspects of God's law in our lives and and God's standards that when you point them at culture, they just repel, they just push away. And I will say this changes over time. Like right now, obviously, the biblical sexual ethic that we find in here is super, super offensive. But honestly, it's just to mainly Western, mainly wealthy, mainly white cultures. 90% of the world would agree with the biblical sexual ethic, but they don't like the forgiveness part. They don't like the free grace part. And before the sexual ethic, it was our belief in creationism. You guys are ignorant, backwards people for believing that. Before that, it was our belief in the inerrancy of scripture. Like, how could you believe that? See, something about our culture, our our holiness is always going to offend. And I've been trying to think about, like, why? Like, why are you so offended (laughs) that the Bible just has this little thing to say? And the more I read 1 Peter, the more he kind of hits the nail on the head. He says it's because by living our lives in holiness, by, by holding on to this standard, we kind of kind of, we expose the futility of other people's idols, the other things that people are chasing. Like our holiness kind of says, hey, there is one road, one right path, and you're not on it. You're not on it. So it's kind of saying without words that that thing that you're chasing after and finding your identity in and basing your life on, it's not a good thing. You're on the wrong path. You're going the wrong way. And people just don't like to hear that. Like when God's law forbids something that a person has found their identity in and something they have convinced themselves will eventually lead to joy and satisfaction that they've been desperately searching for, like they don't like that. They hate being told you're on the the wrong path. But there's nothing we can do about that. (laughs) There's always going to be aspects of God's holiness that offends. But listen, there will also be aspects that are attractive. Okay. Now, we don't pursue offensiveness. We don't needlessly offend. But there will also be some people in our lives that, for whatever reason, are attracted to the way that we live. 
And these are harder to spot. But I guarantee you, if you're holding on to holiness and you're pursuing God with all that you have, there's someone in your life right now that's not running away, but that's leaning in and that's saying, it seems like they've found the very thing that I can't seem to find. They're different. I mean, ask some people in this room right now, how did you come to know Jesus? Odds are it was through a person and they noticed their life and they asked some questions. Peter says all the time, hey, you gotta be prepared for suffering. You gotta be prepared for being maligned, for being lied about. But he says in chapter three, you also gotta be ready to tell people what the source of your hope is. See, our holiness is gonna offend and it's gonna attract. And we can't make it our aim to not offend anyone. And I see some people do that, some Christians, some churches, whole denominations say, we're going to take out the offensive parts of our religion. We're going to drop this law and that law and that law. And that way we're going to attract more people. My question is attract them to what? To a Bible with holes in it, to a God that you made up that has no power to save and no power to transform. Now we have to hold on to holiness, knowing that some people will be offended and some people will be attracted. That's, we're just weird. <laughs> We're just odd. In fact, one of the coolest things that you can do is you can go back through letters written to Roman officials around the time of the first church. And they just did not know what to do. They, they didn't know what to make of Christians. They didn't understand them. They hated them, but they didn't know why. They like loved them, but also thought they were odd. And there's these letters that go back like, how are you handling this? Have you figured them out? And there's one, it's almost like, like a science project on these Christians. It's called the letter to Diognitus. And here's what this first century Roman says. He says, Christians inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined and following the customs of the natives in respect to their clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful but confessedly weird method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table. They share their table, but they, not, they don't have a common bed. They don't share their marriage bed. They're in the flesh, but they don't live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and uh, at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all men. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and yet somehow restored to life. They're poor and yet they make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They're evil spoken of and yet are justified. They're reviled and they bless. They're insulted and they repay the insult with honor. They do good and yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened to life. They're assailed by the Jews as foreigners. They're persecuted by the Greeks. And yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. They're weird. <laughs> they're odd. They're loved and they're hated. They're offensive and yet they attract. That's who we're called to be. Is that who you are? When you look around the people in your life, maybe at work or your fellow students or roommates that are not Christ followers, are you any different? And if not, why not? You want to be countercultural, be holy, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you 
that the unpopular parts are true as well. But would you do this in our midst, Father? Would you allow us to be formed back into the image that you have created us for? Would you allow us to have a holy and proper fear of you so that fear of others just fades into the distance? And would you use us, Father, even though we offend, not needlessly, we don't choose to, it just, it just happens, but even though we offend, would you use our, our, our hold on holiness as a force that attracts others to you. Father, we want to be close to you. So, so close to you. Would you draw us close so that through that, we could draw others close to you as well. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message and encourage you to share it with your friends and family. If you live in the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina, we'd love to meet you at one of our weekend gatherings. For campus locations, service times, and information on our children and student environments, check out gethope.net. To make sure you don't miss our next message, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. We would like to invite you to support what we are doing by visiting gethope.net slash give. Through generosity of people like you, Hope can run programs like our food pantry, homework club, project classroom, and many more.